Uh, we're going to begin in Acts chapter 2 today. In, let's see here. I've got... Okay. thought I had the wrong notes up. Well, you might get a different message in the first service. We'll, we'll be all right, huh? Um, we have... Uh, we've been talking about Peter and the life of the Apostle Peter. And really looking at it with a sense of how does Peter's example and the life he lived, the mistakes he made, the successes he had, how, did those, how do those things impact the way I, I think and operate today, the way I understand who God is, the way I choose to live my life? And we, we really can identify with and, and really empathize with Peter's failings along the way because we've all failed and stumbled in many ways. We can identify with Peter's zeal and his passion at times because We've gotten excited at different times about our relationship with God and those kinds of things. And so we've been looking at Peter's life and just an overview of it and and really drawing in and looking at a few different things. And we're not able to cover every single story uh, that is written in the Bible that concerns Peter. And uh, today we're going to be uh, talking about... Last week I started talking about when Peter stood. So we talked about when Peter was called... We talked about when Peter denied Christ and really had that major falling out there relationally. But we also looked at when Peter was restored uh, back to his position as an apostle and in his relationship with Christ. And there was forgiveness there. And then we started to talk about when Peter stood. And we're looking at this progression of Peter's life from the immaturity early on, his immature thinking, the things he said and did, and as he's progressing and becoming more mature. And then last week we looked at on the day of Pentecost when Peter stood. Peter stood up uh, with the apostles and began to provide leadership. It says he stood among them and he began to instruct them about replacing Judas. But then when Pentecost came and the power of the Holy Spirit came upon Peter, he stood. And when we use that, that phrasing, the idea that somebody stood up among other people, it's not that he just physically stood up. We all do that all the time. But it really gives you the picture that they actually... Uh, there was a prominence, sort of a, a rising to the occasion, a standing out as they stood up and taking authority and taking on who they're called to be. And Peter stood up that day, the day of Pentecost, and we talked about the Feast of Pentecost and how the Holy Spirit came and why there were so many other people from different nations in Jerusalem that day because of that feast. And, and Peter goes out and he stands up and he delivers in the power of the Holy Spirit uh, the, the, a message that propelled and launched the church. So with the power of the Holy Spirit coming, the church was launched. 3,000 people were added to that number that day. They were being baptized. I mean, can you imagine having to do a spontaneous baptism of 3,000 people? Okay, we're talking major momentum, life, energy, something very positive is going on in the world and happening. And really, we wanted to just look at Peter in that situation. He was the one that was willing. He was the one that was called. He, w- he was empowered to do it. And he did it. And we can take an example for our own lives, what God has called us to do, how God has call- gifted us, certain circumstances where God has called us to stand up. Stand up and be who he called us to be. Not stand up in our self righteous arrogance or power or pride, but to stand up to be who he's called us to be in a certain situation. Even though Peter was flawed, even though he made major mistakes, even though sometimes it seems like maybe his personality was a little abrasive or whatever, he still was one that God was putting his trust in to be instrumental in the founding of the church. 
and the launch of the church. And so we've been talking about Peter in this way, and now I want to look at more towards the end of the story of Peter. And, and look at the third time that Peter stood in the scripture. I mean, Peter preached other times, but it never uses that phrase, Peter stood up, except for these three times. And in this particular one that we're going to look at here in a little bit, and I'm going to build up into that a little bit and, and let you know what it is. I've had a number of people say to me, when was the third time Peter stood? I'm like, look it up. Did you look it up? Like, no, no, we want, we want to hear about it. So there's a third time later in his life that it says Peter stood. And, and I want to just reflect on that with the idea of our own development and road towards maturity and our own standing in whatever way God has called us. To stand. So we're picking up in Acts chapter 2. What has just happened is that the church has just exploded in one day. We went mega church in one day. 3,000 people were added, and all these baptisms are taking place. And it says in verse 42, and really you could summarize everything I'm just going to take a few moments and talk about here with these words and they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. And it goes on to list all the things that they devoted themselves. But I want to just kind of get you in the mindset that they had very deliberately committed themselves to one another and to this process and this gospel and everything that's going on. They committed, devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to prayer. There was a lot of awe going on because many signs and wonders were taking place. They had all things in common. They're sharing their belongings. They're selling things in order that they might contribute to a just central sort of need that they had. And, and they're they're meeting in the temple every day. So, you know, that's a big place. There's a lot of people there. They're meeting at the temple, but they're also meeting in their homes and they're breaking bread together in their homes. You can just imagine the life and the energy and the momentum going on in the early church when this happened. It was an exciting, exciting period of time. There was a number of different events that took place. There was a, a beggar that was lame and was healed by Peter and John, and it stirred up a ton of controversy. The Pharisees are like, who are you? Or, I'm sorry, not the Pharisee, but the Sanhedrin, the leaders there. What are, you, what are you doing? What are you preaching in the name of Jesus for? This guy that we just crucified. Stop doing that. And they were imprisoned, and angels broke them out of prison. They, they were beaten even, and then released. There's a lot of controversy going on, and it's gaining a lot of momentum. And the, you know, we even see that in some of their arguments, the Jewish leadership is just saying, uh, Jesus is dead, it's going to die down, just give it a little bit of time. But it's not, it's gaining traction and momentum, and it's an exciting time. We have a very strange story of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira were a husband and wife in the church, but they were doing something in secret. And we don't necessarily know all the ins and outs. Yeah, you want me to get into depth on Ananias and Sapphira? I can't. I don't really understand it. It's a very interesting story. But Ananias and Sapphira had somehow been dishonest with some money that they had made. And so what they did is they sold some property and they brought the money to the feet of the apostles. They were giving it to the cause. But they, didn't, but they withheld some of that for themselves. And in a lot of us, we just go, there's something wrong with that. It's their money. They can do with it what they want. We don't really understand maybe necessarily all what was going on. But there was something deceptive happening with this couple and the way they were using their resources. And possibly they had made a promise to God that they would do something, but they secretly withheld maybe something like that. Well, Ananias comes to Peter and 
And uh, Peter challenges him on it and says, hey, is this the amount of money that you got for that field? And he says, yes. Why would you lie to the Holy Spirit? Peter says. And Ananias drops dead on the spot. A few hours later, his wife Sapphira comes in. And Peter says to her, how much, is this the amount of money you got for the property? She says, yes, which is not true. And he goes, listen, the sound of your, the people that carried your husband's body out of here are on their way in to carry you. She dropped dead to the ground. And you go, what? How does that line up with this gospel? It says, great fear came upon the church and upon all those who heard about it. Why? Because God had moved in such a powerful and destructive way even amongst them. It was uncomfortable. It was an amazing time. So many great stories as we go through those chapters of Acts. Uh, Then things really start to get heated. Stephen, who's one of the disciples there, he's... He's, it says he's full of the Holy Spirit. And he ends up preaching basically the gospel from the Old Testament forward. And they hate him for it. And they stone him. They drag him out and they kill him with stones. They literally take rocks and throw them at him until he's dead. Can you imagine what a horrific experience that would be? But because this pleased the Jews, Herod also... Uh, begins to participate in the persecution. It says, a great persecution broke out against the church in those days. So there was a lot of opposition. So here we are on this train of momentum and all these good things are happening in the church, but all of a sudden this persecution starts to break out. People are starting to pay with their lives for what's going on. And so they begin to flee Jerusalem and the gospel starts to spread to the other areas around them. It's a very interesting Story And when Stephen is being killed, while they're throwing stones at him, there's a young man there named Saul. And for those of you that know the rest of the story, that Saul, who's standing there giving approval to the murder of Stephen by stoning, is one Apostle Paul in the future. He becomes the Apostle Paul who wrote most of these letters that we read in the New Testament. He became a force on the earth for the church. Very powerful. But at this time, early on, he is one of the chief persecutors of the church. He's going around with authorization from the Jewish authorities to arrest and imprison these Christians. He's trying to shut down. They called it the way. And he's trying to shut down the way. Because in his mind, they're heretics. And they're destroying the Jewish faith. And so he's persecuting them. But Jesus appears to Saul along the way. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus steps on the scene. Paul goes through this amazing conversion. Uh, just, Just a wild time for the church in these years. And Peter's a part of all of this. Peter is participating in signs and wonders. He There's a couple of healings that he's a part of and um, uh, raising people from the dead, and it's very impressive. And I get to chapter 10 of Acts. That's where I want to start to build on today. And it has to do with, uh, you know, we've been reflecting on Peter and how it reflects on our lives, and I want us to keep that in mind while we do this, but I uh, just want to unpack some of these stories as we get to this third time that Peter stood. There was a man named Cornelius, and I'm actually just going to summarize this story, I might touch on a few scriptures here through Acts chapter 10 
as we go. But there's a man named uh, Cornelius. He was a centurion, we see in verse 1. And he feared God, we see in verse 2. He was generous. He gave alms. He prayed to God. So he was a Roman soldier that honored God. You know, in... in uh, We'll talk more about this, but we don't often consider that non-Jewish people in terms of race became Jews in terms of religion. We don't see a lot of that, but we call them uh, uh, proselytes, proselytes, sorry. And, and they were people that were not necessarily Jews in their um, uh, history, their nation, their, their culture, but they adopted the Jewish faith. And so they were able to become a part of the Jewish nation. Much like we talk about conversion today of Christianity, people in Christianity, people coming into the faith that maybe were not a part of it. It wasn't as significant in those days, but it did happen. And it would seem that Cornelius would be someone like this. He honors God, the God that the Jews worship. And one day an angel appears to him and says that his, his alms have ascended as a memorial to God. God has heard him. God has recognized him. He says, now I want you to send some men to Joppa. There's a man there named Simon Peter, and he's staying with Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. Sounds like a cartoon song or something I heard once. Anyway, he, he, he wants him to send him there. Go get this guy, Peter, and have him come here. Now, can you imagine if that happened to you? It would be pretty impressive. And so he does. He gets a couple of his servants and some soldiers that are loyal to him. And he says, go find this guy. Beginning in verse 9 of chapter 10, it's talk, it, it moves over to where Peter is. And it says, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, uh, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So you can imagine this sheet, like a bed sheet, and the four corners being held, and it's being lowered down, and it's full of all these animals. All right, Peter, you're hungry. Get up and kill one of these and eat it. And he says, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second, uh, again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. So we have to begin to understand what's going on in this situation. And I want to focus in on it because it does have purpose, although sometimes it can be uh, hard to see, but it's this idea of the clean and the unclean and the Jews and the Gentiles. See, Cornelius was a Gentile. He, was a, he had come from the Gentiles. He wasn't a Jew. And the Jews had been instructed in the law of Moses, do not have anything to do with any of these people or any of their things. Separate yourself. Be a holy people. Don't associate with the Gentiles. And, and God didn't want them adopting their gods. He didn't want them intermarrying. He, he, but he did allow for them to become Jews if they were truly believers, which is pretty interesting. But it's an illustration for us. And we kind of ask ourselves this question, was God racist or something? Like, why would he only show himself to one race? Why did he want them to isolate? That's not how our Christianity functions today. But it does serve as an illustration and foreshadowing of our separation from sin and separation from worldliness. But God adopts everybody. And in those days, though, as, as they understood it, they were to separate themselves from the Gentiles, and they were. It was part of God's process of revealing himself 
to the people. And so, that you, you, I mean, you think about some of the traditions we have as Americans in a 200-year-old nation. I want you to think about what it would have been to live in a culture that had been in existence for 1,500 years. You want to talk about some ingrained behaviors and thoughts and patterns. Holy smokes. These guys were very, very entrenched in their cultural understanding of who God was and how things operated. And so they had these clean and unclean animals. You couldn't eat certain things because God had given instruction. And they, you know, it was very literal. Don't, you know, if it's split hooves and choose the cud or doesn't choose the cud and whatever else, you know, don't eat these things, okay? So Peter is saying, these things are unclean. I can't eat them. I would never eat them. It would be wrong for me to do so. And God says, don't call unclean what I have made clean. And Peter, it happens three times. For whatever reason, Peter always needs things to happen three times before he gets it, much like some of us. And so this happens three times. And then it says in verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed, I want to just point this out, that Peter was perplexed. Is that okay? Yes. Yeah, we're all perplexed sometimes, aren't we? Something how you know, God starts to speak something to us or starts to lead us in a certain way. And or we get a picture, we kind of have a vision of something that we feel like maybe is from God, and we're perplexed. And sometimes we always feel this urgency to interpret or analyze or make happen immediately. But we need to trust God with those things. Peter was perplexed. He didn't know what to do with this vision. He didn't know what it meant. But right when this is happening, uh, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision uh, that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius... They show up at Simon's house. Okay, so these guys, just as this vision is coming to an end, these, these Gentile people show up at Simon's house, and they're like, hey, Cornelius, he's a good guy. He wants to talk to you. Come with us. And so Peter does. You know, the Holy Spirit urges him to. And so he does. Now, this is a really, really big deal. And it can be very hard for us to comprehend or even identify with. But the fact that Peter would choose to go be with this group of people is a very big deal. And so I want to pick up partway through uh, verse 23. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Now you got to put yourself in Cornelius' shoes. He's just had this amazing vision where he sends for some guy he doesn't know. And so he gathers all his friends because he's really expectant. I don't know what this is about, but it's going to be amazing. So let's get together because this guy's coming to my house, whoever he is. Maybe he had heard of him. I don't know. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. And you can just, from all these stories of what Peter, how Peter has spoken and how he's conducted himself, I kind of think of it, he's probably like, get up. I'm just a man too. I'm just a guy like you. You know, because Peter just seems to have that edge to him in the way he communicates. I don't know for sure how he said it, but I can picture him being that way. And then he said, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So Peter's starting to understand. God is doing something. 
And when you look back at all the promises of the Old Testament, in fact, we were talking about this idea of why did God only reveal himself to the Jews? Why did he do that? Well, why did he do that? Do you remember? Because of one man, one man that had faith. The Bible says he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Remember who that was? Abraham. One man who believed God. And because he believed God, God said, I will bless all nations through your offspring. I will make you into a great nation. So that one promise that God owed to that one man resulted in an entire nation of people, the Jews. That's why he was their God. Because it all came from this situation with Abraham. And that's why we call him Father Abraham. And that's why in Hebrews it teaches about Uh, Faith being the justification for sin, not works. Because that is how it was for Abraham. And all of these descendants of his were the people that God was introducing himself to. That's why. Because he was creating a people, a group to himself. So anyway, he's saying, you know, this is the law. So when I was sent for you, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? And Cornelius then shares the story of the angel that he saw. And so then, and then he says, we brought you here to hear whatever the Lord told you to tell us. And in verse 34, Peter starts preaching the gospel. He starts talking about, ultimately, the forgiveness of sins. And it says in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. So he's, he's preaching, he's talking to them, the Holy Spirit falls on them, they're, preaching, they're speaking in tongues, he realizes it, he's amazed. Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people? So a bunch of them were baptized and he remained with them for several days. Very big deal, why? Because no longer is God just working through the, gen, the Jews, he now has poured out his Holy Spirit in a powerful way on a group of Gentiles. And this stuns Peter. Things are starting to change. He's had this vision of the unclean things now being declared clean. He goes and visits the Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. They get baptized. They become Christians. They didn't, you got to realize, they didn't, they didn't quite realize that they weren't even called Christians yet. They didn't, they didn't call it Christianity. They just hadn't even got that far yet. They did not realize that this was going to go beyond the Jews. Maybe they had some inklings because the Old Testament actually taught that that would eventually be the case. That the the, the nations, all nations would be blessed because of the offspring of Abraham, who ultimately is Christ. So because of Christ, all nations would be blessed, not just one. Now that that seems like ancient history to us and, and hard to imagine, but in Peter's moment in time, this was outrageous. <laughs> it was just astounding shift in their thinking, because they had been ingrained in, in, in not only just the Jewish law, but all the additional stuff that Jesus criticized them for, having added to that. They had this just this mountain of culture and teaching, and, and here Jesus came and just cut through it. Now the Gentiles are even baptizing the Holy Spirit. What in the world is going on? So Peter becomes the one who first really witnesses this that we know of in the scripture, that we see this moment. He goes back to Jerusalem, or where, where did he go back to? I'm sorry. I don't know if I know. Well, anyway. So he goes back, and they're criticizing him. They're like, what are you doing hanging out with the Gentiles? What are you doing there, Peter? 
Hanging out with people you shouldn't. But Peter then shares the vision and the story with them. And it says um, in verse 18 of chapter 11, when they heard these things, they fell silent. See, Peter begins to make an argument that this isn't just about the Jews. It's about the Gentiles. If God gave the same gift to them that he gave to us, who am I to stand in God's way? (laughs) And they all fell silent. And that's just an inkling there. You know, when someone has authority and they're telling a powerful story, people fall silent and they're listening and they're contemplating. Peter is bringing something shocking. And And then they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is so, so important to understand, at least historically. But it does have implications principally for us. Now I want to fast forward a number of years later. If anyone should understand that um, the Gentiles are now able to be saved, able to be a part of God's family, able to be baptized in the Spirit, all of these things, um, Peter should be the one that understands that because he helped that happen. So this one of many instances where this fisherman who made a lot of mistakes, also had a lot of successes, God is still using all these years later. And that is good news for you and I. All the ups and downs, all the years, all the things, all the mistakes, all the successes, whatever age you are or phase in life and things you've gone through, there's still always something for God to do with you. Always. And Peter just demonstrates that over and over and over in his lifetime. God used him. Apparently, uh, Peter spent some time in Antioch, and, and this is a comforting thing. I, I know it can be hard to understand, but we talked about Paul a little bit. So here you have this, over the years, we're talking years are going by here, you guys. And, and they're in Antioch, and, and Paul has become quite a, he's, he's an apostle, he's a very powerful person in the church and the gospel. Peter's a very pow- powerful person, particularly around Jerusalem and with the Jews, And in Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells us a story about himself and Peter. And Paul says, when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, however, I opposed him to his face because he stood to be condemned. For before certain men came from James, note the name James, we'll come back to that in a bit. He used to eat with the Gentiles. What is he saying? Peter was eating with the Gentiles, which was a no-no to the Jews, but we're starting to understand this is okay for the Christians. But some guys came from James, and then Peter starts to back off. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself for fear of those in the circumcision group. The circumcision group is the Jews. The circumcision is the sign of their covenant, and that becomes a very contentious point in the days ahead. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. Paul is calling out Peter for being a hypocrite. You brought the the message to the Gentiles in the first place, Peter. You watched God baptize them in the Holy Spirit. You baptized a bunch of them. And when the Jews weren't around, you were hanging out with them. And now when the Jews show up in town, you start backing off. That's hypocrisy, Peter. Paul is calling out Peter. When I saw that they were not, it even goes so far that even Barnabas was led astray. No, not Barnabas, him too. When I saw that they were not walking in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you who are a Jew 
Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? This was contentious all the time in the first centuries because of the Jew and the Gentile collision. How are they going to respect each other? How are they going to work together? How are they going to compromise for the sake of this gospel message that Jesus has just launched into the world? When they're arguing, the Jews are saying, you have to be circumcised to be saved. The Gentiles are like, no, thank you. Okay, the Jews are like, you can't eat the ham sandwich. And the Gentiles are like, sure we can. And there's all these arguments going on between them about how to conduct themselves, just like we do today. Arguing all the time about how things should be done, how they should operate, what's right, what's wrong. There's always these things going on. Well, this was, this was a very, very, very big deal at the time because this gospel was primarily coming from the Jewish nation in the beginning. So it's a hot topic. And Paul writes a lot about it in his letters, making arguments about, you know, if you start to try and fulfill the law, you're obligated to keep the whole thing. If you break one little part of it, you've broken the whole thing. Don't rely on that way of relating to God. It doesn't work. But rather rely on this way of faith that Jesus has taught us. He made the way. Let's believe. You know, all, all that kind of argument that Paul makes in the New Testament. Now, what about this? Okay, so were Peter and Paul enemies after that? Did they hate each other? Were they adversaries, you know, rivals in the kingdom? We don't see any inclination of that. I would like to think that by this point in his life, Peter went, you're right, Paul. My bad. Over. That could, have, that could have just been one moment. Peter could have recognized it and said, no, you're right, Paul. I, I, forgive me, that was a mistake. Done. Done deal. We know that Peter respected Paul. When Peter writes in his second letter, which theoretically is right towards the end of his life, he writes about Paul. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Consider also that our Lord's patience brings salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom God gave him. It's just such a theologically loaded statement that has so much attached to it. We can't get into it. Our beloved Paul also wrote you, our beloved Paul with the wisdom God gave him. Peter recognizes Paul. He respects Paul. He writes this way in all his letters, speaking in them about such matters. Such parts of his letters are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. Some some translations say twist, as they do the rest of the scriptures and to their own destruction. You may recall this passage of scripture back, uh, it's been quite a while now, but when we're establishing the authority of the word of God and the canon of scripture, we actually recognize here that Peter is recognizing Paul's writings as scripture. And also that they can be twisted to the destruction of people. So he's talking about the wisdom of, of, of Paul, etc., etc. All that just to draw attention to, uh, for, for the purpose of this message and series, the, the humanity of Peter. And then realizing our own humanity. These guys, you know, they live these amazing lives with all this, this stuff. But why not you? Why not you? Because our story is Peter's story in so many ways. I want to now get to the third time that we see Peter stand. And I've spent a lot of time building on this Jew-Gentile issue to get us to this point. Acts chapter 15, it's called the Jerusalem Council. And what this is, is um, 
really considered the first council. It's a situation where there's a major theological controversy in the church. Now, what had happened? Well, let's just read the story. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, their soteriology was under attack. Their theology about salvation. You got to get circumcised if you want to go to heaven. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. It was a very serious question to them. Do we need to do these Jewish law things or not in order to have a relationship with God? This becomes a very pivotal moment in the history of the church. Because if this would have went any different way, or the teaching would have been different, we might have a very, very different church today, where we still practice these things. These people were so important and instrumental in this moment in time to make this decision. While we may not be able to relate to it exactly, we can relate to the principles that we see throughout So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, wait, what? Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. There's something to think about. Rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order for them to keep the law of Moses. Controversy starts. Pharisees became Christians, first of all. There were Pharisees that became Christians. They were still in that affiliation in their Christianity. So they were married to an ideology that they brought from their, faith, from their previous faith situation into their Christianity. And you've got to realize for the Jews, that was a fairly smooth blend at this point in time. It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, so you can see this, a big argument and debate over the issue theologically of circumcision, And fulfilling the law of Moses for the Christians. After much debate, here it is, Peter stood up. The man who had preached the gospel to the Gentiles, who maybe by this time had been rebuked by Paul, because Paul is one of the major advocates against doing this. Here he is. I can just imagine now Peter, the young man fisherman, now who knows exactly how old, but the mature sage figure in this situation, right? A man of experience, a man of wisdom, a man who's made mistakes, a man who's full of the Spirit, a man who's got leadership and authority in the body of Christ, and he stands. In this intense moment of difficulty, he stands up. And his words are so powerful. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit 
just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What's Peter getting at here? You guys know that God justifies according to the heart. He recognizes the heart. He's given the Holy Spirit to them. Why would you put God to the test? You and I can't fulfill that law. Our fathers couldn't fulfill the law. Why would you put that on them? This was radical and revolutionary in that moment. And who delivered? Peter. He stood in the shoes God had called him to stand in. He stood up to be who God had called him to be. He had so many opportunities to tuck tail and run and not be who God called him to be. He had so many opportunities to shrink back. He had failed, even in his denial of Christ. And yet here he is, all these years later, standing and inserting himself in a situation and correcting the doctrinal error that is taking place in the church. Don't put this yoke on them. Don't put something on them they cannot bear. And he goes on and and, and it says, I love this. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. And then they listened to Paul and Barnabas and their stories. And then James, okay, we've talked about James. And there is difficulty here. James is really, not James the brother of John. James the brother of John is dead. He's been killed by Herod by this point. He'd been martyred. This is, this is another James. And he's a leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he says, the, he, said, he teaches for a little bit. And then he says, Therefore my judgment is this. We should not make it difficult for those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Or not trouble. But that word trouble translates in the NIV, make it difficult in many other translations. And I, I've, we've used this in other contexts before. How often we make it difficult for non-believers because we put this yoke of all the stuff on them in order to fulfill the criteria. Such a powerful teaching here in so many ways. But in terms of church history, Peter stood up, James makes this decision. Don't make it difficult for the Gentiles. In other words, no circumcision. No fulfilling the law of Moses. But you should write them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And here's his reasoning, because we, do we, we don't deal with the uh, idols or the blood or the food sacrifice idols thing. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What is James getting at? Please make some concessions because this has been going on for 1,500 years in these places. And this, this is your doorway right here for all of Paul's arguments about to the Jews I become a Jew, to the Greeks I become a Greek, to the Americans I become an American, that I might win some. It's why he writes in Romans, you know, he goes through Romans 9, 10, and 11 talking about all of this stuff in depth. I would encourage you, study it. It's so fascinating. But then later in Romans 14, he's saying, 
you know what? It is totally legal for you to eat meat. Eat food sacrificed to an idol. Eat anything in the marketplace without an issue of conscience. But not if it causes your brother to stumble. You might have the right to eat the meat. It doesn't make it right for you to do it. If it's a problem for the other people around you. Why is James giving these concessions to the Gentiles? Because Moses is being, t- being taught for 1,500 years in these places. And so they're, they're starting to build a way to relate and continue to work together by loving one another, showing respect for one another and their ways of life, even though they don't agree. Very, very good stuff. You have probably heard that Peter was crucified upside down. You know, we don't really know. Um, Some of those writings were thrown out in the early church. The writer of that particular thing was highly criticized. He was a bishop someplace, and he wrote sort of a what was considered fiction. But we do have for sure some reliable sources. We've got people like Clement uh, who wrote about Peter being crucified, although it doesn't say upside down. We have Tertullian also, a more reliable source. Origin later, maybe not so much, but he does refer to the idea of Peter being crucified upside down. We don't know for sure if he was, uh, but it would appear from all those writings that he was crucified. Peter paid the ultimate price. That prophecy that Jesus gave him that day when he restored him, someday you will stretch out your arms and someone will dress you and you will go where you do not want to go, was fulfilled. Peter stood throughout his life, though he made those mistakes, he stood and was who God called him to be. And by the end of his life, he paid the ultimate price. But I hope that you and I, in hearing his story and looking at those examples and learning from those different situations of the early church, that we can then take uh, consolation, encouragement, um, strength even, but also grace for ourselves and for those around us in those messages, in that story of Peter. I loved doing this series. It was so fun looking at Peter's life because it's so relatable. And yet, so inspiring. Would you stand? And if I could metaphorically say, can you stand like Peter stood? Peter stood and things changed. Peter stood and the church had leadership. Peter stood and theological information was corrected. And the trajectory of the church was pushed in the direction God had for it. Let's pray. Lord God, Thank you for Peter's life and the example that he is to all of us in his, in his humanity. It's so good to know that this wasn't all done by perfect people, but by quite imperfect people like us. And God, I pray for each one here that um, I'm not Peter. I'm not called to be a leader in this or that or whatever. You are called in some way, in some things, whether great or small. God, I pray that you would help us to stand in those things and be encouraged. I pray for the encouragement of every heart here. God, that they would be, each one would be empowered to walk out and stand in that calling on their lives in whatever ways you've called them. Encourage and strengthen the saints today, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.